This week we have no intro because I've been busy working on a keynote presentation and a spot of teacher training got in the way of my preparation time yesterday. So our intro is no intro. Meta. Well, it's more of an announcement than it is an intro. Yeah, but it's in the intro section of the Google Doc we use and it's probably going to be marked off as the intro on the metadata of the podcast. Well, it's kind of intro adjacent, uh, intro-esque, intro-ish. Proto intro. Yeah, sounds like an intro to me, just not a very good one. And that differs from our usual intros in what way? Yeah, good point and well made, but that also means that this is an intro. You got me. This is in fact an intro. And you know what follows the intro? The theme? The theme. Theme! theme. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. My name is Josh Addison here in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith in Zhuhai, China, uh, trying a different locale this week in hopes of maybe getting slightly better reception than we have been in previous weeks using our preferred podcasting tool. Yes, I am broadcasting from my apartment, which up until about 10 minutes ago was the perfect location to broadcast for a podcast. And then someone in, well, work people in the apartment upstairs appear to be installing something in the wall using drills. So at some point, if we're unlucky, there's going to be a lot of driller noise going on in this podcast, which is going to be an absolute pain to edit out. Possibly. Or maybe we could have just stuck something in at the start about you recording this from the dentists and just have you throw in an occasional, ooh, me molars or something. And then, of course, I I could have done my, my Steve Martin impression. Goes, You'll be a dentist, a dentist. You have a talent for causing pain. I still say the line, um, I thrill when I drill a bicuspid, even though people say I'm maladjusted, is the best rhyme anyone has written in any piece of music ever adjusted maladjusted with bicuspid have you been watching only murders in the building i have not great steve martin and that and also great selena gomez and great martin short it's mm-hmm. and it's all about podcasting so frankly i think you're obliged to watch it oh okay i guess i better get onto it but um how about we record our podcast first though or we could pause, you could watch all 10 episodes of Only Murders in the Building, and then we could resume the podcast and talk about Only Murders in the Building. Yeah, no, I think we could just, just just do this one now. I mean, or, or we could just Not pretend actively. that we've just paused, you've watched them, and then you've come back. Although that would be a problem because I haven't watched episode 10 yet. So actually, let's, let's say you've watched all 10 but you're going to talk about it with me next week because I'm not up to date like you are. Sure, let's say that. But can we also then just record this week's episode? Oh, fine. We'll record a podcast. Yes, and and, and what a podcast it is. A it's cast of thousands, which a cast yeah. of, of basically two. Hmm. Uh, well, three if you count the author of the paper who we're going to be talking about today. Um, we're looking at another David Cody in this edition of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. And I think we better just play a sting and get on with it right now. Indeed, it's time to erect that fortress around our hearts. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. 
the only kind of erection I'm down for. So uh, this week we are looking at conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists, which is a chapter from the book What to Believe Now, Applying Epistemology... Let's try that again. What to Believe Now, Applying Epistemology, not Epistemology, even though I quite frankly prefer the sound of that, um, applying it to contemporary issues. That's what it's being complied, uh, applied to. This is a book, but the whole book is David Cody, right? It's not a... So the philosophically interesting aspect of this chapter is that initially this chapter was going to be a co-written paper with Charles Bigdom. But due to circumstances the authors don't go into, that never occurred. David then says, look, the ideas are from Charles and myself, but all errors in the chapter are, of course, my own. So this started off as a different piece and became a book chapter. The thing which is interesting from my perspective is that this book is the reason why my first book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, was not published by Rutledge. Because they already had a conspiracy theory book, and basically, yes, I I had submitted a proposal to Rutledge, which publishes Wiley Blackwell, which is the actual uh, publication house that released David's book, and they went, "Yeah, this is a really, really, really good proposal. We would love to publish it, but we published David Cody's book recently, and that deals with conspiracy theories, and we don't really want another volume competing with an existing volume in our lineup, so we wish you good luck submitting it elsewhere. Hmm. Oh, well, fair enough. So yes, this, this particular chapter is all about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists, although I gather the rest of the book deals with a bunch of other ones, and indeed it comes directly after a chapter on rumours, rumours and rumour mongers as it's called, which is rumour. We've talked about rumour a little bit in the past. Um, is that something you've looked into more? I, my first published paste was on, was on rumours, which was, in fact, a reply to David Cody and his father, Tony Cody, where I argue that we need to make a demarcation between gossip and rumour because I take it that gossiping is a kind of malicious activity whereby people spread misinformation or disinformation, whilst rumour is a situation where we're engaging in a kind of truth-seeking activity. So people tend to, when they're engaging in rumour, try to work out whether something they've heard is true or false or warranted or unwarranted to believe by testing it out on, on others. So when you gossip, you're basically spreading information that you're fairly sure is malicious. It might not actually be false, but it is malicious. And you're, you know, you're, you're relaying salacious information to other people. But when you're engaging in rumour mongering, you're often trying to search for the truth Ooh. of some I really situation. Think, I really think every time the noise stops, you just need to say, oh, pardon me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually write it off as explosive flatulence. Damn you, Balthazar. I was Did thinking about think? making flatulence jokes, but I decided, mm. I, I decided that, and this is a weird sentence, I decided that that was something that was beyond our podcast, mm. that we were too good for flatulence jokes. Was it Mitchell and Webb that had the sketch with a couple who um, had, had bought a house not knowing it was right next to a foghorn factory, 
and the entire sketch, the gag is somebody starts talking and then a foghorn goes off. That rings a bell. I think it was much. I don't know. We could have. I, I just have the feeling that if we actually try to stop to wait, well, try to wait for it to stop, we're just going to get in that situation where every time somebody talks, it's going to start up again, and then we'll pause, and then we'll, and it'll it'll be a comic co- comedy tour de force, but probably make this episode four times longer than it needs to be. Well, see, the great thing is when you talk, I can of course edit the sound out you can, because it's yes. not on your end. It's when I talk and it's going on in the background, I worry that it's actually just going to completely flood my di- dialogue. So, frankly, it'd be great you'll be doing a lot of talking this episode, whilst I'll be editing out my massive flatulence all Excellent. the time. Well. Well, then I'll begin. So yes, I mentioned the fact that it comes after a chapter on rumours simply because the uh, this chapter starts. I defended rumours and rumour mongers against their detractors in the last chapter. In this chapter, I will defend conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists against theirs. Um, and so he starts by, as, as we've sort of come to suspect, um, doing a bit of, a, a bit of a, an overview, a bit of a... Um, summary of what's gone on before. He talks about how certain people, such as Brian L. Keeley, um, have said that, that conspiracism or conspiracy thinking is on the rise and that that's a bad thing. Uh, whereas Cody says, um, if anything, there are fewer conspiracy theories and theorists now in the past, less conspiracism and conspiracy thinking, and it is this situation that should be deplored. Furthermore, this deplorable situation has at least partly been brought about by the contemporary fashion for castigating certain people as conspiracy theorists and dismissing their beliefs as conspiracy theories, a fashion which appears to have started by fellow philosopher Sir Karl Popper. These expressions were not widely used before Popper. Popper used them pejoratively, and they've retained these pejorative connotations to this day. So so there you go, right off the bat, Cody reckons that the, the, if, if there's a problem with conspiracy theories, it's that there's not enough of them these days. And actually, I think this is kind of fascinating, because there is there is good reason to think that there are fewer conspiracy theories now than there have been in the past. All the polling data basically indicates the peak of conspiracy talk in public discourse, at least in the West, was sometime in the 1960s. And it's kind of been on a downward, I'm going to say spiral, a slight incline ever since. Although I suspect maybe there's been a slight bump in talk as of the Trump presidency and particularly around the January 6th insurrection at the beginning of this year. And people kind of have debates as to what's going on there. Are we just becoming inured to conspiracy theories? Are people less inclined to talk about them? If we take David's argument seriously here, and I think it's worth considering, he's going, look, this is a consequence of the castigation of conspiracy theorists probably back in the 1960s at the height of, and I put in quotes here, the conspiracy theory craze. And this has then led to people not willing to engage in theorizing about conspiracies, which, as he's going to argue, has deleterious social consequences in the same way that people claim that belief in conspiracy theories has bad social consequences as well. Mm. Yes, indeed. Later on, I think we'll see him say words to the effect that that a prevalence of conspiracy theories is is it's a good thing and shows uh, that that we're living in a particularly open society. But anyway, so he compares the treatment of conspiracy theories to a witch hunt, um, not literally, of course, but 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 the same sort of attitudes. And he says, um, 
He says, of course, some of them, talking about conspiracy theories, may deserve to be criticised or ignored, maybe even condescended to or sneered at, but there is no more justification for criticising, ignoring, condescending to or sneering at people because they are conspiracy theorists than there was for punishing people because they were witches. One can denounce a witch hunt without defending everyone who has been accused of being a witch. So obviously he's not trying to say all conspiracy theories are awesome, but he's saying if if a conspiracy theory conspiracy theory is bad, it's not bad just because it's a conspiracy theory, which is a a theme that should not be unfamiliar to anyone who's listened to this podcast for any um, any period of time. Now, Josh, what is your attitude about witches? Uh, I have I have no strong feelings about witches, to be honest. Um, uh, the, the 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 fairy story ones, I suppose I'm opposed to on account of the the child murder and all of that. But um, people who call themselves witches or at least Wicca, at worst, I find a bit annoying. What about bad Je- bad Jeffy the witch? Fan or not a fan? Uh, of, of the classic Spike Milligan audio play, fan. Uh, bad Jelly the witch herself. Well, I mean, she had a bit of a potty mouth on her that one. I don't know that I can approve. Now, for listeners overseas who are going, what on earth are you talking about? Bad Jelly the witch was a short story written by Spike Milligan, the British comedian, for his children that was then turned into a short radio play, which I believe played initially back on the BBC in the UK, where it sunk without trace, but for some reason, and this is one of those really, really big questions about New Zealand society, it became enormously popular in mm. Aotearoa, New Zealand, to the point where the book has always been in print back home. And you can basically go into any CD store, if they still exist, in Aotearoa and find a copy of Bad Jelly the Witch on CD there. For some reason, it was really, really huge in one small section down under. Mm. Anyway, back to the paper. So uh, as you'd expect, we start to look at definitions. And um, Cody sort of says there are different ways of looking at a conspiracy theory. Um, He says on some definitions, there is something wrong with being a conspiracy theorist, but no one or hardly anyone is a conspiracy theorist. On other definitions, there really are conspiracy theories, perhaps lots of them, but there's nothing wrong with being one. Um, so for that second kind, he sort of refers to the likes of Charles Pigden, who says, yeah, conspiracy theories, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. They're all through history. They happen all the time. Uh, and that's fine. There's, there isn't actually anything wrong with them. And if, if you want to say that conspiracy, there is something wrong with conspiracy theories, um, you do so by restricting your definition of them so much that you end up hardly being able to refer to anything. So in this in this introductory part of it, um, he sort of he sort of puts out his goal of what he wants to um, wants to achieve in this chapter. He says, <clears throat> "So far, we have considered two conceptions of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist. On one of them, the property of being a conspiracy theorist is an unobjectionable one, which applies to almost everyone. On the other, it is an objectionable property which applies to almost no one." In what follows, I will consider attempts to find a middle way, that is, a conception of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist, which makes it an objectionable thing to be, and which applies to some people and not to others. In particular, I will look for a conception of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist, which makes it objectionable to be a conspiracy theorist, and which applies to the people who are pilloried as such, but not to those who pillory them. As we shall see, such conceptions are hard to come by. So he's he's so he starts basically he's he's trying to come up with a, a conception of conspiracy theory um, that does allow you to say 
these conspiracy theories are bad in and of themselves um, for reasons that are specific to them and which don't apply to the people who are, are um, uh, making these accusations of them. Um, spoiler: He's going to. It's going to turn out you can't. That's this is all a this is all sort of a rhetorical thing there. But it's quite a clever trick philosophically hmm. to do this. To go, look, you have an intuition. Let's see whether your intuition is correct by seeing if we can manipulate our definitions to obtain the thing that we already believe. Turns out no matter what we try to do, we can't obtain that thing, so give up on that intuition. What's kind of interesting about this, and we'll get into this probably in a year or so's time, there's now a whole suite of new literature in philosophy, which is trying to basically resurrect the generalist project in the philosophy of conspiracy theory by saying there is something inherently wrong with believing in conspiracy theories and being a conspiracy theorist. But we've got a long way to go to get there. Mm. So at this point, Cody says that, that more or less everyone agrees that conspiracies occur, because even the people like Popper, who, are, who, who don't have good things to say about them, will agree that, well, yes, they, they have actually, you know, there have been some of them in the past. We can point to things like the, the assassination of Caesar and what have you and say those really were conspiracies that happened. Um, but he says, but, but, but many of these people may still want to say that conspiracy theories are irrational. And and will will respond with something lines of of course there are conspiracies but and then Cody goes to look at various various disclaimers that might follow that but um, and so his the, the next the next uh, section of his paper is full of buts which was true please. now now jo- Josh has a note here that he was trying really hard to find a way to bring in some kind of reference like David Cody's like like big big buts and I cannot lie. But unfortunately, he was unable to find some way to to make that joke, and no. thus was going to skip over it. But it's in the notes, and frankly, I feel that people need to peer behind the curtain and mm. see how your scatological brain works. Yes, and of course, the problem with that is that that just saying David Cody likes big butts and he cannot lie uh, is 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 just frankly not true. Because as we shall see, he doesn't like any of these butts. He thinks they are objectionable butts. Um, and the first you're, such but you're an objectionable but very well. Uh, the, the first but that he considers is that people say, of course, there are conspiracies, but conspiracies don't happen often. Now, this is a fairly common refrain, and mm. as he points out, it's just not true. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, Popper, for example, admits that conspiracies occur. In fact, he actually even describes them as a typical social phenomena. So it is the case that conspiracies happen probably more often than people think. So if your reliance on saying, look, conspiracy theories are bad because conspiracies don't happen particularly often, history is going to be a pretty big shock to you if you ever sit down and read, say, a history book of the 20th century. Mm. Yes, yeah, so if we want to say that the problem the reason why conspiracy theorists are irrational is because they assume that conspiracies happen all the time when in fact they don't. Well, that, that just doesn't work because conspiracies, quite frankly, do happen all the time. Um, Cody looks at various ways you might try to restrict the definition of a conspiracy to say, you know, it only counts as a conspiracy if it's morally suspect. Uh, it only counts as a conspiracy if people are going out of their way to actively deceive. It only counts as a conspiracy uh, if, if it involves something that's actually illegal 
and apart from being fairly arbitrary, they they, they they still end up not being that that rare, even if you try to add a few provisos onto them. And he goes on to say, of course, terms like common, rare, and typical are relative. Conspiracies are rare compared to some things, and common compared to others. Presumably, some people think conspiracies are more common than in fact they are, but they don't seem to be the people most likely to be castigated as conspiracy theorists. Someone who believed in very few conspiracies but believed that they are of great importance would be much more likely to attract the pejorative label conspiracy theorist than one who believed in more conspiracies but considered them to be of little moment. This suggests another way of understanding what is supposed to be wrong with being a conspiracy theorist, which reminds me... Did you ever watch the old Justice League Unlimited cartoons? I did not. Whenever they were being made, oh, they were a bit of fun. But they had the character of the question, who's uh, the the, the uh, sort of detective character, basically, who uh, got turned into Rorschach in the Watchmen comics, the same sort of thing. But in the in the JLU, he's he's the conspiracy, and he's voiced by Jeffrey Combs of Reanimator and all those Herbert other West. Versions. Herbert West himself, uh, but there's there's just one. Uh, this just reminded me of the fact that there's one point where one of the characters says, "If I don't listen to this guy, everything is conspiracies with him." To which he replies, "Not conspiracies, conspiracy singular." And the whole point is the character. You know, the character is such a conspiracy nut that he thinks there's literally only one conspiracy in the world, and it's this giant, all-encompassing thing that draws in every single other conspiracy in the world. So yeah. Um, you can believe you you can believe that conspiracy theories don't aren't particularly common uh, and still be a massive conspiracy theorist. But anyway, as he says, this suggests another thing that 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 perhaps um, someone might want to say. Of course, there are conspiracies, but conspiracies tend to be insignificant. So Cody says, several authors have suggested that conspiracy theorists go wrong not by overstating the frequency with which conspiracies occur, but by overstating their significance when they do occur. Um, and once again, I mean, that that's just plain wrong. I mean, again, even, even going back to Popper again, he talks about the likes of um, Lenin and Hitler, the conspiracies that um, they enacted to, to get their way, which resulted in, you know, millions of deaths and what have you. There's nothing insignificant about those. Um, so there really isn't much more to say to that point than it's it's just plain false. Uh, but another objection might be, of course, conspiracy. Of course, there are conspiracies, but conspiracies tend to fail. And so there have been various people go, going all the way back to Machiavelli, uh, but Popper himself, and um, uh, refers to a paper by Daniel Pipes, who I'm not familiar with, from 1997, uh, all being people who suggest that conspiracies really succeed. Um, and so Cody says this suggests that the problem with conspiracy theorists is that they are people who postulate mainly successful conspiracies and that this is what's irrational. So, okay, you're allowed to believe that there are conspiracies and you're allowed to believe that they can be um, significant, but but by and large, they don't, most of the time they don't fail. They don't, they're, they're, they get found out um, and especially there's, it starts referring to the, the old conspiracy versus cock-up. Um, thing which he actually attributes in the footnotes to supposedly it was um, Bernard Ingham, chief chief press secretary to Margaret Thatcher, is the one who who supposedly said uh, many journalists have fallen for the conspiracy theory of government. I do assure you that they would produce more accurate work if they adhered to the cock-up theory. Although that's from 1999, and I'm pretty sure the expression has been around longer than that. But I don't know. Maybe he was just a and of a good course, example of someone the saying the problem it. there is, of course, 
a member of a government is, of course, going to say, oh, you know, it's, it's mostly cock-ups, mostly cock-ups. Definitely isn't conspiracies by Her Majesty's government to do bad things. No, no, no. No, 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 dear boy, dear boy, dear boy. You might think that we're deliberately trying to cause issues, but it's just a series of cock-ups. I mean, we're not that clever. That's precisely what a clever conspirator would say. Oh, no, no, no. Mm. No, no, it's, a, it's, it's all accident, my dear chat. All accident. There's also another interesting point here that Cody makes, which is there's a sampling error here. Yes, we know about a lot of unsuccessful conspiracies because they've been revealed, because they were unsuccessful. That actually doesn't tell us anything about successful conspiracies. I mean, if there are conspiracies out there which have successfully kept themselves from public view for long periods of time, there could be a few. There could be none. There could be a lot. But you can't just take it that because we know of some conspiracy theories which have failed, that that tells us that conspiracy theories, by and large, are prone to failure. Mm. So, yes, on the conspiracy versus cock-up angle, Cody says, conspiracy theories are often contrasted with cock-up theories, with the suggestion that the latter are always, or at least typically, preferable to the former. But popular, though it is, this idea is wrong in two respects. First, conspiracies and cock-ups are not incompatible. A cock-up is a plan or endeavour which fails through incompetence. If I'm not trying to do something, I can't cock it up. And since conspiracies are plans of a certain kind, it is perfectly possible to cock them up. Second, although conspiracies have been known to fail, there's no reason to think they're more prone to failure than other kinds of human endeavour. And then points out that, you know, we know there are, once again, you can appeal to history and say there have been plenty of successful assassinations and coups and revolutions. History books are full of them, all of which were brought about, at at least involved in some way, conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Now, this, this is a problem which goes all the way back to Popper. Because Popper makes this rather weird claim that a conspiracy is only successful if the conspirators maintain secrecy about it. So basically any example of a conspiratorial activity which gets revealed to the general populace is by Popper's definition a failed conspiracy because the conspirators must keep things secret for the conspiracy to be successful. And as Charles points out, and as David is pointing out here, actually there are lots of examples of conspiracies which you only need to keep secret for a very limited amount of time. And I mean, the example that I I talked about a lot in the PhD is the assassination of Julius Caesar. You, of course, have to keep your assassination plot against the dictator secret, because if you don't, then the dictator is going to know you're going to try to assassinate him, or his followers are going to know you're trying to assassinate him, and so they're going to stop the assassination. So you need to keep it secret up until the point that Caesar is dead. But once Caesar is dead, because you're trying to make a political statement by assassinating the dictator, you of course want to reveal all. You want to say, look, we are the people who assassinated Julius Caesar, and here are the reasons as to why we thought it was necessary. We succeeded in our conspiracy, the dictator is dead, now we're going to tell you why we did it. So there are lots of cases where you go, look, the conspiracy was successful, and then we found out about it. Because that was actually part of the plan. Mm. Yeah, so Cody basically brings up both of these um, issues that you've mentioned, the the sampling error type thing, the idea that we can't say that most conspiracy theories 
uh, fail if we don't if, if we're not capable of knowing about the ones that succeed if, if you take success as being we never ever find out about them um, but, but then also it's not actually a condition of many conspiracies that they remain secret forever I mean the other one of course is uh, sort of terrorist type attacks um, they will be planned and uh, planned in, in secret but once they've been executed pretty much immediately as after they've been executed the terrorists want everyone to know that they were the ones behind it um, so so it's it's not just that the secrecy isn't necessary it's not even desirable by the conspirators by the time you get to the end of it and uh, and of course uh, we, we've we've talked about this we've talked about you know the the, the, the notion of secrecy and and the it being a, a part of conspiracies, uh, plenty in the past. So um, none of this is particularly um, particularly foreign. So so that kind of falls down. So he has um, one more potential objection. You might say, of course, conspiracies occur, but governments and government agencies of Western countries don't conspire often, successfully or significantly. So as he puts it. So just believing in lots of significant and or successful conspiracies is not usually on its own enough to get you accused of being a conspiracy theorist. A great deal depends on whom you attribute the conspiracies to. So he's going to say that, okay, well, if you're, if you're talking about bringing up conspiracy theories about the likes of North Korea, people probably aren't going to object to that. But maybe, maybe, maybe the problem is that people... Uh, postulating conspiracy theories about Western governments. And that's, that's, that's why they're irrational, because Western governments don't conspire particularly much. And once again, you can hear the laughter of pretty much every historian um, in the world. I mean, first of all, as he points out, not even the, the, the idea that Western countries don't conspire often isn't even a thing that most people believe. He cites, cites a study... Uh, which showed that 74% of people believe that uh, believe in the, fra- the 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 sentence the U.S. government regularly engages in conspiratorial and clandestine operations, and Cody goes further and suggests that the other 26% if if they, if they don't believe that it just means they're not paying attention. Um, he brings up um, examples such as the Gulf of Tonkin affair, Watergate, Iran Contra, the, the those those illegal renditions. He mentions. The the um the menu bombings Operation Menu isn't one that we've looked at before as far as I'm aware but that was that was America bombing Cambodia I think in, in during or before or after the Vietnam War and uh, covering up the fact that they were engaging in such extensive sort of carpet bombing um, long before they they actually admitted to that's what was going on. So, I mean, again, yeah, basically, uh, one, you just need to look at the world around you, really, and most of these objections um, ju- just fall away. They don't really stand up at all. So where to from here? So the next section of this chapter is called Conspiracy Theory in the Open Society. Uh, Cody starts this section by saying, it is true, as I've argued elsewhere, that in open societies, government conspiracies are likely to be both less common and less significant. And there's no question that the US and other Western countries are much more open than some other countries, such as North Korea. But this should not lead us to conclude that governments and government agencies of Western countries don't conspire often successfully or significantly for three reasons. First, Openness is a matter of degree. There's no such thing as a completely or even highly open society. Second, openness such as it is is not the exclusive province of the United States and other Western societies. Some non-Western societies seem to be more open than some Western societies. 
And third, even in the most open of actually existing societies, conspiracy, including conspiracy by government, is important and often successful. So this bit... This bit kind of then turns into a reaction against the the, the, the good old Sunstein and Vermeule paper, which really did seem to seem to seem to seem to prod a hornet's nest of a sort. Was it just because you had these Harvard law professors coming in and sort of making pronouncements in 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 an area that wasn't really their discipline, or was it or was it specifically the whole we should we should fight conspiracy theories by conspiring against them. It's mostly because Cass Sunstein had been that information czar in the Obama administration, which meant, made people go, look, this guy is actually in a position of power and has the president's ear, and he's espousing these views. This seems like the kind of thing that we should look at. I th- let's, let's just go back to those those three claims that David makes, though, because I think it's actually quite interesting to think about these. So the first one, openness is a matter of degree. There's no such thing as a completely or even highly open society. Now, I think we can all agree there's no such thing as a completely open society. I'm actually not entirely sure whether we can say there isn't a highly open society out there. That's a that's a judgment call which is probably going to be something which is contentious. So arguably, at least according to most metrics, our own government, that of Aotearoa New Zealand, is taken to be one of, if not the most transparent governments in the world. So you might argue that actually our government is a highly open society. I'm not entirely sure that David's right there to say that there aren't even, that there aren't relatively highly open societies out there. Now, the second point, uh, that maybe there are societies which are more open outside of the West than in the West, I think that that might well be true, although possible. it is interesting he doesn't actually give an example there. I'd like to know what he thinks. And the third point, even in the most open of actually existing societies, conspiracy, including conspiracy by government, is common, important, and often successful. The careful reader is going to point out that David's already said common is a relative term here. So it might be the case that, yes, uh, conspiracies are more common than other kinds of events, even in open societies. But they still might not be so common to say that they are so common to treat them seriously. So I think there's, whilst I agree with him in principle with the kind of general thrust of his argument here, I do think that at least point one and point three are just ever so slightly contentious. And he kind of just skips past them. Okay, so here, here's, some, here's three uncontroversial things for me to say of which actually two are controversial, even according to the things I've said in this chapter. Mm. But yes, yeah, so so he does, as you say, skip over fairly quickly and move straight on to his reaction to Sunstead and Vermeule. Um, he takes issue with the fact that they they say that in open societies like the US government actions don't say se- stay secret for long. But his complaint, he says they only give a couple of examples and they're not great examples. So he talks about th- uh, things, dodgy things the Bush administration got up to their... their what were they, extra-legal renditions and, and enhanced interrogations and what have you that all turned out to be legal. He points Things out which the they, Obama administration continued as well, basically. an administration that Cass Sunstein advised. 
But you know. Uh, but he points out that they they kept kept them under wraps for years. Like that's that's certainly long enough. For certainly uh, certainly for the people who were actually involved in them. So he says they don't really back up that point particularly well. Um, and the, again, that also runs into the problem that we just mentioned in the previous bit that we don't know what we don't know. Um, we we can't know that the government. Uh, that the government conspiracies always get found out because we don't know about the ones that we haven't found out about yet. That's that's how knowing things works. Um, so that yeah, that that just doesn't really work as far as Cody is concerned. He says um, he goes on after this to say we have seen that at least on some readings of what it is to be a conspiracy theorist, the more open one society is, the less one will be justified in being a conspiracy theorist. But how can one tell how open one's society is? And so he looks at a few factors that would suggest we're living in an open society, uh, freedom of speech, um, a, a diverse media, um, access to, what is it, I think he mentions access to things like the internet communication channels, whatever have you, a freedom of internet usage. Um, uh, also mentions uh, uh, society is more likely to be open if it is really in a state of war, since war is commonly used to justify closing a society's channels of communication. Um, possibly a little little bit of side eye to his own country there. Um, but he does. He, he then he brings up an interesting point that he he says. All else being equal, a society will be more open to the extent that conspiracy theorists and cognates such as conspiracists are not used as terms of abuse. So he basically this one wants to say that that having having a pejorative gloss on conspiracies and conspiracy theorists um, is a hallmark of a less open society. I think basically because conspiracy theories are often contrasted to the official theory put forward by the powers that be. Um, so if if it's a tendency of a society to scorn any attempt to um, question the powers that be, that would suggest that such a society is, is less open. Out of curiosity, because you said giving a side eye to his country there, which country do you think oh, David comes from? Is he an Aussie? He is an Aussie. I thought he was an American. Sorry, I'm getting, yeah. my, I'm getting my people... People mixed up, they're fine. Then a side eye to the the good old US of A there. Yes, I forget how many yes, of, so how many of the philosophers in this area yeah. are Antipodeans. I just assume yeah. they're all American, except for you and and Pat Steve Stokes Clark. and Charles Picton and Charles Clark and Cody and Neil Levy. Mm. Anyway, so he moves on to the next um, section called conspiracy baiting as propaganda, which is this, this is where he's really going into. The, the way that people use the pejorative definition, the pejorative uh, um, sense of conspiracy theory. Um, so he says, the propagandistic nature of campaigns against conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists is at least as evident as the propagandistic nature of campaigns against rumours and rumour mongers. Both forms of propaganda serve to herd opinion, or at least respectable opinion, within, set li within limits set by governments and other powerful institutions. Which, I mean, it's something that we've talked about forever, that the idea that you can label something as a conspiracy theory or label someone as a conspiracy theorist and, and then just brush things aside. I mean, the example you always like to use was John Key writing off, um, uh, what's it, uh, Nicky... Hager? I completely forgot the guy's name. Nicky Hager. Why did that just escape my memory all of a sudden? Nick, writing off Nicky Hager as just a conspiracy theorist and saying no more. 
Um, <clears throat> he gives an example um, during um, uh, during well, I can't remember which election it was now, uh, where someone basically uh, a, a Democrat. Um, suggested that uh, the Bush government had been sort of using terror alert levels to, to to manipulate the public a bit, and this just got immediately called, "Oh, that's that's a conspiracy theory. This guy's a conspiracy theorist," and that was it. And even when it turned out some years later that actually the Bush government had been fudging terrorist levels for their own sort of propagandistic purposes, at, at no point did anyone. Uh, go back and say, oh, so, so so the fact that you just called something a conspiracy theory and then and therefore ignored it, um, what, what, what what's up with that? Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, so he talks about, he, he goes back to Sunstein and Vermeule. Um, again, you know, Sunstein and Vermeule, like Popper before them, admit that some conspiracy theories are true and some are justified, but still claim that all conspiracy theories are bad theories. And he, as various other people that we've um, looked at, says that simply the idea of conspiring to combat conspiracy theories just sounds like a dumb idea. He says, you know, you you might have thought that the solution to the the possible harms that can result from conspiracy theories uh, lies in greater openness, honesty and accountability on the part of the government, and yet then, as he observes, they, they basically go in the op- opposite direction. They, the, the suggestions they make would result in a more closed society with more government action going on in secret against other people. So he's um, yeah, certainly not fond of Sunstein and Femuel, uh, which I, I, I'm yet to find anyone who is in this field. I assume they had other people who agreed with them elsewhere. There will be a few papers in the far future, which at least are not as condemning as the Sunstein piece or the Sunstein and the the, the Vermeule piece. But yes, most people think it was a bad paper espousing bad ideas, which are in themselves self-contradictory. So that brings us to the next chapter, which is entitled, So What Should Be Done? Because obviously Sunstein and Vermeule... That that was the the the, conclu- you know, the outcome of their paper. They were actually proposing things. What can we do about this? So and uh, Cody doesn't like their conclusions. So he's, he proposes his own. Um, he starts the section by saying, "In looking at different ways of understanding what people are getting at when they accuse others of being conspiracy theorists, we see that the expression conspiracy theorist, like its close relative conspiracy theory, is multiply ambiguous." What is more, reflection on each of the standard ways of understanding what it is to be a conspiracy theorist shows that there's nothing wrong with being one. In fact, in each of each case, it is those who accuse others of being conspiracy theorists who are guilty of irrationality, or at least error. What should someone who recognises this do about it? And um, he goes for a goes for kind of a linguistic solution, really. His, his first thing he says is that we should we should probably just stop using the words conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist altogether. And I know you've you've mentioned in the past that that David Cody thinks we should not be using using yeah, the words. So yeah, this is the point where he starts to do his turn. So the first paper we looked at, he was going, well look, the term's problematic. This chapter he's going, well maybe we could just stop using the term. But as he notes, it's probably not going to happen. 
in a few years' time, he's just going to stand his ground on this and go, look, I advocate just elim- eliminating the term from our lexicon. It functions as propaganda, and it's got to go. And the thing is, I think his argument here as to why that project is not going to be successful is as true now as it was back then. Mm. So yes, so, so first he suggests we don't use the we simply don't use the words, but says it's probably not, not likely to happen. So he says, well, then we probably need maybe we should reclaim the words um, using the word uh, using the analogy with the words witch and queer, which have uh, both sort of been reclaimed by the people that they're uh, originally uh, targeted as when they were a pejorative. Um, so he says, you know, maybe you know, we just keep using the words and make sure we're using them in a positive way and 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 take them back. Um, but then, further, furthermore, he suggests maybe that possibly we need to um, introduce new terms to uh, to to not combat, I suppose, but to oppose these conspiracy the terms conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory. So he says. Those who resist either of the strategies I've suggested so far, getting rid of the expression conspiracy theorist or retaining it without the negative connotations, will point out quite rightly that some theories which are criticised as conspiracy theories and some people who are criticised as conspiracy theorists deserve to be criticised. We've seen that conspiracies are common, but some people presumably think they're more common than in fact they are. We've seen that conspiracies often succeed, but some people probably think they succeed more often than in fact they do. We've seen that conspiracies are important, but some people may think they're more important than in fact they are. Finally, we've seen that conspiracies by governments and government agencies of Western countries, such as the United States, are common, often successful and often important, but some people almost certainly think they are more common, successful, and or important than in fact they are, referring back to his big butts of the previous sections. So he says in, in these cases, if you're talking about these people who who, uh, who overestimate the um, frequency or impact um, or, or success rate of conspiracies, uh, they're making they're making errors. Uh, but first of all, they're all making a bunch of different errors. You know, whether whether you think conspiracy theories are more common than they are, or more successful than they are, those, those are different things. And lumping them all, all these these different range of errors together under the label of conspiracy theorist doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But he also points out that each of these errors has an opposite. So it, it's equally wrong. It would, would be equally wrong to think that conspiracy theories are less common than they actually are. It would be wrong to think that they are they succeed less often than they really do, and so on with the other ones. So he suggests that if we're going to lump all of those the, those uh, previous eras under the labels conspiracy theorist, we need a label for people who commit these other areas, the areas of underestimating. And he suggests the term a coincidence theorist which he says uh, coincidence theorists are people who fail, as it were, to connect the dots, who fail to see any significance in even the most striking correlations. And so I suggest that we we popularise this use of the phrase conspira- coincidence theorist to push back against pejorative uses of conspiracy theorists, especially pointing out when a conspiracy theory turned out to be true. And actually, this, this is the point where he mentions the, um, the, it was the 2004 presidential election and Howard Dean, wasn't he the one who made a weird shriek which killed his nomination chances dead on the spot? See, I thought you meant to say made a weird Dean. shriek which killed someone. Okay, so I don't remember that story about that Howard been, Dean. Yes. 
Yes, I think I think he, he I think he killed his future career. I, I'm not aware of him killing someone in the no. same respect in the patron episode last week. I am not aware of Alex Jones ki- killing a dog, but I'm not going to rule this out. Hmm. I'm just there is no evidence of that that I, to hand. Yes, so it was Howard Dean suggested that um, terror alerts were manipulated for domestic political advantage by the Bush, Bush administration and. Um, Bush's campaign spokesman, Terry Holt, just immediately called him a bizarre conspiracy theorist, and that was it. And numerous people uh, had a go at Dean for being a conspiracy theorist. Um, journalists called on John Kerry, who, if you recall, ended up being the, the nominee that time, to denounce Dean's conspiracy theory, which eventually he did. Um, and, but it turned out it was true. So I think what, what he he's um, sort of suggesting is that you could – you could turn around and say, well, you know, also it turns out all, all you coincidence theorists were wrong. The conspiracy theorists are right. You thought that um, it was just coincidence that these these levels would fluctuate in a way that um, that would advantage the politics the Bush administration was putting forwards. But in fact, it was actually the conspiracy the conspiracy theorists who were right all along. Um, but he also want, uh, contrasts conspiracy theorists, not just with coincidence theorists, but also he brings up the idea of institutional theorists, are people who, rather than appeal to conspiracies to explain certain things, will just ex- uh, sort of rely on impersonal institutional things like market forces as being um, behind certain things. Yes, this this is a broadside against Noam Chomsky. Right. Because Chomsky um, but, does this whole institutional ana- analysis thing, because Chomsky kind of goes out of his way to avoid being labelled as a conspiracy theorist about some of the structural issues, particularly in the US. And so it's, like, it's, just, it's just the way institutions are set up. We get these malign or adverse outcomes because of the way institutions work. And of course, people have responded to that, which is, that's a really convenient way to let people get away with their conspiracies. Okay, so, oh, no, no, they're not deliberately or intentionally trying to achieve these ends. It's just an accidental byproduct of the way that institutions are set up. Well done, Chomsky, for letting these people get away with their conspiracies by blaming the structure and not the people within the structure who are directing the activities. Mm. Yes, so Cody says... The main problem with this line of thought is that impersonal explanations in terms of institutions and market forces are not inconsistent with conspiratorial explanations. Many institutions owe their existence, at least in part, to conspiracies. Think of the United States government's debt to the conspiratorial activities of the Founding Fathers. And many institutions themselves regularly conspire. Indeed, many institutions do little but conspire. Think of the CIA or the KGB. What's more, market forces are not inconsistent with conspiracy. Uh, And then he says, at the root of the institutional theorist critique of conspiracy theorists is a concern not to offer excessively easy solutions to social problems. The worry is that conspiracy theorists encourage the idea that the road to societal improvement consists in the removal of bad people from positions of power, while ignoring the underlying structures that are the real cause of most of our problems, problems which may well include the presence of bad people in positions of power. While there is certainly something to this concern, the alternative strategy of concentrating on systematic or institutional change comes with its own dangers. First, it can be unrealistic, at least in the short term, where most of us live our lives. Second, as history has often demonstrated, the new institutions may be worse than the ones they replaced. 
Um, so yes, so he's he's brings up the idea that um, we could talk about coincidence theorists to contrast with conspiracy theorists. Uh, this this was from 2012, so it's it's not caught on yet, but um, who knows? Um, and then, but, but then contrast them also against institutional theorists who he doesn't appear to have much time for, which brings us all to his conclusion, which as far as conclusions go is quite a long one. He still sort of brings it brings yeah, some stuff Yeah, because it's, it's a conclusion with a and also. So here's my conclusion. Now I'm also going to show you how my conclusion is different from other people's conclusions. Yes, if, yeah, that, that doesn't belong in the conclusion. That belongs mm. in the section before the conclusion. You know, you deal with the objections and then you conclude. This bit to the conclusion feel like they're very much tacked on, as if someone yes. said, "Oh, you haven't you haven't accounted for this thing." Fine, I'll just add a little bit at the end. And what about this thing? I'll add another section there as well. Mm. Yes. So he does. He just sort of yeah rattles off a bunch of different kind of points. He really first of all he um, he starts his conclusion by talking about the fact that some people think we should dismiss conspiracy theories because they're quote unquote just theories, um, but that that rests on that rests on an assumption or um, that rests on a definition of theory as being just sort of a speculative hypothesis, just a just a thing that I reckon, which is how people use the word theory sometimes. But it's not how they use it a lot of the time, and certainly people don't. Uh, well, most people don't dismiss the likes of scientific theories because they're just theories. Although, of course, that was always the the intelligent design. Um, uh, argument against the theory of evolution, and yet even those people don't really seem to have a problem with theories of gravity or the atomic theory of matter and what have you. Um, he then points out that some people will point to a false conspiracy theory and then argue that all conspiracy theories are similarly false, which is obviously just a bad argumentative move. He talks about uh, Jill Long, sorry, uh, Jill LeBlanc. Um, talking about Roswell theories and trying to generalise from them to say that conspiracy theories are bad. He talks about Steve Clark and some of the papers that we've looked at where he talks about 9-11 truth theories and saying they're wrong, therefore conspiracy theories are wrong. And that's just a bad move. Um, and, then, and then he goes on, as you say, to um, differentiate his views from the views of other people because he's, he's spent most of this chapter saying, you know, here are people who, who I disagree with, here are people who think conspiracy theories are inherently bad, whereas I think they're worth defending. Um, now I'm going to talk about some of the people who agree with me that conspiracy theories are worth defending, but whose views are not exactly the same as mine. He sort of goes to differentiate them. So the first person he talks about is Lee Basham, who's shown up plenty of times on this podcast before. Um, he disagrees with Basham's concept of pragmatic rejection, that idea that that we should reject conspiracy theories just because there's nothing we can do about them, not because there's anything epistemically wrong with them, just on, on pragmatic grounds. Um, but Cody says, well, A, often there are things we can do about them. We can work to expose them or things like that. So it's sort of what journalists do all the time, that sort of stuff, um, unless we're only talking about Basham's malevolent global conspiracies, which, which are, you know, all-encompassing all and, and nigh-omnipotent and there's nothing we could possibly do anything about. But Cody seems to think that that's more, more just a, a sort of a, a hypothetical exercise in talking about, you know, evil, when we talk about Kant's evil demons or brains in jars or trolley problems or what have you. It's, it's just it's kind of in that realm, really. And in, 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 in actuality, 
any conspiracy you think of is undertaken by human beings who are not omnipotent. So there's there's probably always going to be you know he doesn't find that um, uh, compelling in practical terms. The other thing to note, which we noted when we were looking at Basham's paper on pragmatic rejection is it isn't necessarily Lee saying there's nothing we can do. It's more Lee saying, look, this is one response you can take, which is the pragmatic response, which is as an individual, there's nothing I can do about these things. So it's not really Basham's response. It's Basham going, look, here's a response you might be inclined to take. And I think David, like myself, when I wrote my PhD thesis and my book, kind of goes and gives Lee a much more strident view than actually Lee expresses in the paper itself. Yeah, I mean, it was in one of, um, I'm not sure if it was that paper or another one, where he talks about the idea that, look, I mean, like, like nobody these days really cares whether Kennedy was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald or if it was some sort of government conspiracy. And, and if it was... You know, that that was, what, 50, almost 60 years ago now. So what are you going to do? And, and in 50 years' time, whether or not the Bush administration was really behind 9-11 is basically just going to be an academic exercise at that point. If if they really were behind it, you know, they, they, they got away with it. So what can you do? He then well, what, turns what, to look- what you can do is what they used to do with, with popes who broke, broke the rules. You dig up their uh, corpses, them up. put them yes. on trial, mm. and then execute them, which is, you know, quite... quite execute them again. Quite, yes. quite, well, no. I mean, in, the, in these cases, those popes died of natural deaths. They uh, were right. executed after death, which is a really neat trick. Mm. Mm. Uh, so then he goes on to um, talk about where he disagrees with Yuharika, um, who, uh, when he wrote about his political conspiracy theories, a paper that we've also looked at. And while he, he again, is, is on board with the fact that Riker is defending uh, conspiracy theories, he doesn't like the fact that he's only defending what he calls these political conspiracy theories, um, especially because in the paper, political conspiracy theories are, um, first of all, sort of contrasted with, I think, what Riker called the, calls standard um, theories by which he means sort of non-conspiratorial, especially official explanations. And uh, Cody doesn't like the fact that especially that, that, that political conspiracy theories are still presented as basically being a weaker kind of explanation than, than your standard ones when that's we haven't really seen anything to support that. Um, the, the whole point that, that Cody's been saying is that if a conspiracy theory is bad, it's bad. It's not bad because it's a conspiracy theory. It's bad for other reasons. Um, so finally, finally, he gets to the conclusion of the conclusion, where he says the association between conspiracy theorizing and irrationality is so deeply entrenched in our culture that when people hear that I defend conspiracy theorists and theories, they often assume that I must be defending irrationality. I am not. I'm defending conspiracy theorists and theories against accusations of irrationality, along with a variety of other accusations. Unfortunately, some would-be defenders of conspiracy theorizing have embraced a form of irrationalism. And uh, quotes another tract doing such uh, such a thing that talks about how authors are wanting to level the epistemological playing field between conspiracy theories and other truth-asserting endeavours. But um, Cody says, 
I also want to level the epistemological playing field, but it is misguided to think that the way to do this is by adopting the relativist position and conflicting that conflicting social explanations are constructed truths equally valid for different communities of believers. If a conspiracy theory contradicts another theory, then at least one of the two theories is false. Nothing can be said a priori about which it is. The only way to find out is by listening to arguments and examining evidence. So quite a, quite a particularist note to end on there. It is, yes. Now, what's interesting about this paper, as I said before, is it's kind of the last time that Cody is going to be happy to talk about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. The future work we'll see coming out of him is largely going, look, we shouldn't be using these terms at all. So he's still technically defending conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing and conspiracy theorists now, but he doesn't like using those terms to engage in that defense. So this is kind of the breaking point, the point where he's going, I'm still happy to use these terms, although I would posit maybe changing our language would, would be a good idea. In future, it's going to be language change, language change, language change, and I don't like using these terms, I don't like using these terms, I don't like using these terms. Hmm. Oh, well, we'll have to see. But I mean, yes, the, as as we said, this particular chapter is from uh, the title of the book is What to Believe Now, Applying Epistemology. Why can I not say it properly when it comes into, when it's, is it because it comes after the word applying? I've got too many la la noises in there. Applying epistemology to contemporary issues. I think I'm starting to say applying epistemological issues or something. But anyway, the point is he's looking for practical, uh, as he says, uh, what 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 should be done. Um, so whereas Sunstein and Vermeule did something similar and nobody likes what, what they had to say, um, I guess I guess the whole point of this is to come up with some ideas of how, how we could actually make a difference and how people talk about conspiracy theories. But... Um, yeah, language change is one of those weird things. You can you can influence it a bit, but often it's um, it's 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 very organic. I've heard some people say that language is the only true democracy that exists. Everybody gets a single vote, and that's it. Um, and certainly, um, his his suggestion does not appear to have have gone viral in the sort of way that tends to. Um, influence and add language to actually change. Although, I mean, yeah, obviously there are um, concerted efforts by people to change the way we talk about things, but um, I don't think, I think this issue is probably a bit too niche to spawn one of those. Well, especially since, as I have argued elsewhere, and we'll get onto this when we talk about the paper where he really just du- doubles down on don't use the terms, even if we could persuade academics to stop talking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and use new language. What's going to stop the the politicians who know it's an existing pejorative in ordinary language from still using it themselves? Because, Mm. let's face it, academics don't have much sway when it comes to common discourse. Politicians have a lot more sway. As long as they continue to use the term, doesn't really matter what the rest of us say. Mm, mm, precisely. So I, I found it an interesting paper and a nicely, a nicely sort of written one. Um, didn't didn't get as polemical as some of the ones we've looked at more recently, which always puts me off a little. So points for that, I say. 
But um, that basically brings us to the end of this installment of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So uh, I guess next week we actually have to come up with a, an actual topic to talk about. We could Jeez. do Operation Menu. Oh, we could do Operation Menu. I, I actually, I had a quick look at it to see what the heck he was talking about because I hadn't heard of that one before. So I don't know if there's actually an episode's worth of stuff in there, but certainly one worth, worth, worth investigating. But that's a problem for another time. And that time is not this time. This is the time when we finish things off, but not before we say that, of course, there is a bonus episode coming up. Um, and quite frankly, I have no idea what we're going to talk about in it. No, because we're just going to have a good old chinwag. Yes, no, we've both been fairly busy this week and haven't come up with a secondary topic, but there's all sorts of also, nonsense I mean, we could about, which is basically all we end up doing anyway. Aside from the death of Donald Rumsfeld, there really hasn't been much of note to talk about anyway. Donald Rumsfeld died. Didn't he? No, Colin Powell. Oh, no, that's oh. right. Yes, uh, people have been mm. pointing out that, you know, so uh, having A, got my American politicians wrong, uh, I think it was Mark Alfa, Alfa, Alfano, who's a epistem, epistemolo, epistemologist I know, either tweeting or retweeting someone saying, look, someone is someone keeps trying to kill Henry Kissinger, and Henry Kissinger has some kind of force field that means that lower-level war criminals die in his stead. Right. And your thoughts naturally went to Rumsfeld. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I think we, we, we're already this, – this is, this is killer content we could be putting in the patron episode for our special patrons. We don't want to – don't want to um, give too much away. Uh, nevertheless, if you want to be a patron and um, listen to the two of us just talk bollocks for the next 20-odd minutes, uh, you're quite welcome to. Um, and you can do that by going to betrayon.com and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. But if you, not without cause, aren't interested in, in, in becoming a patron this week, that's fine because you've listened to the end of this entire episode, which going by the timer has reached uh, over an hour. As the conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre episodes tend to do, and oh, good oh, for you oh, for listening oh, this long. Oh, quick, oh. quick update on the Twitter account: we got more than two, two new followers. I think we got, ne got nearly seven. I mean, it's wow. I mean, it's been such a bumper week that I now feel there's so much pressure now to tweet with that account. Mm. I may have to actually just take the account down. I mean, eleven yes, followers it's too much. Yeah, it, it's it's um, with that. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, Twitter account again at PodGuideCon. Yeah, yeah. Get to it whilst it's still there. Mm. Anyway, that'll do for now, I think. I, I better just bring things to a close while I still can, and I will do it in the traditional way of simply saying a goodbye. And I'll say the goodbye. You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentif. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.